Have you ever had a dream that you didn't want to wake up from? A dream so vivid and comfortable you'd be perfectly content with staying asleep forever? Video games feel like accurate representations of those dreams. Like all other art forms, consuming them means escapism. In the same manner, dreams present us with our subconscious desires for a more pleasurable reality. However, entertainment is at an advantage because it has storytelling on its side. Whilst providing the player with the break from reality they've asked for, they can also directly communicate some valuable messages and lessons using characters, narrative arcs, or in the case of video games, the ingenuity of game design. And in 1993, Nintendo took the leap and portrayed this connection in The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. Zelda games before this didn't have much of a narrative to speak of. It gave you basic motivations based on a synopsis in the instruction manual or context from the characters in-game, but these characters existed just to serve that purpose. Your progression through the game's story is set entirely in gameplay. Link's Awakening would be the first game in the series to change that, and although its narrative events are sparse throughout the game, its content and legacy convey its message loud and clear. Nintendo's dreams for the future of Zelda, the character's aspirations for a happy life, the player's desire for answers in their quest, and your own wishes to engross yourself in a world away from reality. It's all tied together by the theme of dreams, and the memories we associate with them. But... how? How does Link's Awakening communicate this? I mean, it's just another Zelda game, isn't it? Well, I'm Liam Triforce, and today, we'll be looking at how The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening is an allegory for dreaming, and why its design and message have left an impact on the series itself and the people that played it. Link's Awakening takes an immediate step away from the extravagant adventure settings used by the previous games in the series. In fact, it's not even set in Hyrule. Instead, it takes place on Koholint Island, a quaint spot of land that Link washes up on after a thunderstorm destroys his raft. In Mabe Village, everything you need is within arm's reach, and the game asks you to venture off on your own in order to recover your sword and get in touch with your surroundings. This both harkens back to the original game's philosophy of setting off on your own, and the second game's condensed opening area. It's yet another invisible tutorial, a topic so dearly beloved on this channel, evidently. Learning about the game without being conscious to its teaching tools. By finding your sword, you're familiarizing yourself with the map and becoming accustomed to how pathfinding will work from here on out. The villagers will have a few tasks and minigames for you to complete in order to obtain rewards, like fishing and a crane game, but in order to play these games, you'll need rupees. After obtaining your sword, you'll no doubt notice you can finally cut down bushes. This will usually net you rupees, and you can finally do some lawn mowing back in Mabe Village. This also allows you to hop down into a cave and obtain what will likely be your very first piece of heart. Acquainting yourself with the characters and their personalities isn't just some added fluff, as a giant trading quest that you can initiate from the village will become much easier with knowledge of where their priorities lie. For example, upon winning the Yoshi doll in a crane game, you could remember the couple and their baby. They'll give you a ribbon in exchange for the doll, and you can give that ribbon to the chain chomp that wishes to be beautiful. You'll get canned dog food in return, and Sally collects canned food as a hobby. I always found it hilarious that he goes into panic mode and pleads for the dog food like someone is about to kill him. Anyway, the trading quest continues onward throughout the entire game, and it rewards attentiveness. Koholin isn't as sprawling and jam-packed with things to discover as Hyrule is, and that makes a quest like this fit right in. It's brilliant. 
Attentiveness isn't just limited to the trading quest, however. As a quick example, you can fetch a mushroom by exploring the mysterious forest for a while, and by taking that to the witch's hut you can create some magic powder. By releasing the spell that's been cast on Terran with this powder, you'll finally be able to grab the key to the first dungeon. The small size of the game's overworld allows for these kinds of puzzles to be possible without overwhelming the player. And even disregarding that, the game still teaches you to pay attention to things that aren't quite right, like asymmetrical blocks in the first dungeon that you can align to solve a puzzle. This resourcefulness throughout Link's Awakening is taught and demonstrated effectively in its first moments. And yet, all of it is communicated within the game's safe and comfortable Mabe village. It's a stark contrast from the grandiose dungeon crawling that goes on in Link to the Past first moments, but it's both refreshing and impressive what they were able to achieve here. To this day, the impact of Link's Awakening's small-town, big-adventure approach can be seen in various Zelda games, such as Ocarina of Time's Kokiri Forest transitioning to the vast field of Hyrule, Wind Waker's Outset Island's small scope in comparison to the Great Sea, and Breath of the Wild's Great Plateau only encompassing just 1% of the game's map despite its breadth. Nintendo's dreams for the future of the series were embedded in an unlikely entry. Indeed, Link's Awakening left its own impact on the series. It may not have revolutionized the design of the series like its predecessor, but it still did things that are unique to this day. Due to the game's existence on a portable console with only two face buttons, the innovations of Link to the Past were put at odds with the physical and technical limitations of the Game Boy. Thus, they had to revert to the two-button system of the original game. However, that doesn't mean they couldn't show how far they've come. A lot of Link's Awakening's combat is designed around managing two item slots. For example, bosses will require you to find a combination of items to use in combat. The eagle atop the tower requires the hookshot to deal damage as it flies overhead, and the shield to block incoming damage. You'll need bombs to deal damage to the face shrine's boss, but you'll also need rock's feather in order to jump the floor tiles disappearing underneath you. The slime eye will require both the sword and the pegasus boots in order to be split in two and defeated. That's right. Instead of automatically pulling your sword out and charging when pressing a button, the boots instead have to be equipped to one of your two inventory buttons. This, however, can lead to several instances in the overworld in which joining items together can benefit you. As you slash through bushes in the overworld, you'll no doubt uncover a few pitfalls. Most of these can be jumped using Rock's Feather, but some are lined up in a row, meaning you'll need to use the Feather and Pegasus boots in tandem to clear the gap. This is emphatically satisfying to both discover and pull off, and all of this is an example of how Link's Awakening requires ingenuity from the player in the littlest of things. This system brought importance to items in a Zelda game, and from here on out the series would encourage the player to employ strategy in the items they equipped. But as good as a system may be in a Zelda game, it can't reach its full potential without being accompanied by great design. Let's talk about the overworld first and foremost, because it's of most interest to me. As I mentioned earlier, the game's overworld is considerably smaller than Link to the Pasts, and as a result, only 12 heart pieces can be found. So of the total 14 heart containers available in this game, only 3 of them come from the overworld. Although they are cleverly hidden, and the small number of them means they could focus on not creating ones that infuriate me, I see the lack of heart pieces as discouraging players from seeking them out entirely. If you don't collect a single container from heart pieces, you'll only be missing 3 containers by the end of the game. That's not a big loss, even if the final boss is challenging. In contrast, Link to the Past featured 6 heart containers to be gained from pieces. That's a huge chunk of your health, and if you're struggling in combat, your incentive would be to explore. Although there is another collectible unique to Link's Awakening. The Secret Seashells. There are 26 of them across Koholand, and you can find them in chests, beneath the soil, in the trees, etc. After collecting 20 of them, a powerful sword will be bestowed upon you. Although you need a high percentage of the seashells in order to obtain the sword, they are more plentiful and easier to uncover. 
They can be found just about anywhere, and paying attention to the world around you, as taught in the game's first minutes, is how you're going to obtain the bulk of them. I enjoyed how the game incentivizes collecting the shells. But there's one problem that was brought to light in the Game Boy Color version of the game. Upon completing the game's bonus color dungeon, you have the option to either double your attack or defense. This essentially replaces the need for collecting one of these collectibles depending on the tunic you choose, and I find this a bit annoying. On top of that, there are power-ups that enemies drop which temporarily increase either your attack or defense too, and they appear in all versions of the game. These inclusions further devalue collectibles that I could have adored. But don't worry. Despite my initial reservations, I believe the heart pieces and shells are redeemable in the end. The discussion of linear versus non-linear doesn't have to be so black and white in regards to Zelda. Linear doesn't mean that the game can't employ a sense of discovery. I believe Link's Awakening handles discovery better than most linear games in the series. When Link to the Past decided to mark dungeons on your map, my philosophy of Zelda being about finding dungeons in an overworld was lost. The game however made up for this by spreading its heart pieces across a giant map. So there was a lot of ground to cover. In contrast to Link to the Past map markers, Link's Awakening restored my original philosophy. Each time you clear a dungeon, you are given a vague hint towards the location of the next dungeon. Even if you're able to locate it, you most likely won't be able to enter without obtaining a prerequisite, usually a key. This was taught to you in the game's opening moments, and these mini-quests before dungeons keep the gameplay fresh. They go beyond simple fetch quests for a key. Perhaps you'll need to scour Conalit Castle for five golden leaves, or resurrect a rooster to traverse the perilous heights of Tall Tall Mountain. Rather than being a simple trek from one end of the island to the other, the game acquaints you with the various nooks and crannies of Koholin using these quests. These, combined with the lengthy trading quest that takes place throughout the game, are vital in becoming invested in the game's overworld, and it adds a lot of depth to a very condensed overworld for a Zelda game. This is where it becomes apparent that Link's Awakening benefits from being linear. Since these quests are further accustoming you to the overworld, and you still have to discover your main path, you're given a great excuse to dig deeper and uncover more. A lot of the time these heart pieces are placed along the main path, and it's up to you to figure out how and when you can collect them. They're placed linearly, but they still feel like a proper reward for exploration. And the same goes for the seashells. It's a very organic structure for the game, and I warmed up to it as time went on. But alas, the meat of the game is in its dungeons. Despite the game's overworld being much smaller than its predecessors, it still features 8 dungeons. And 9 if you count the color dungeon. Although they don't feature more than 2 floors, they do feature 2 levels of elevation and puzzles that involve dropping between floors, just like Link to the Past. This is pretty impressive for a Game Boy title, and it adds depth to several dungeons without rehashing ideas from the previous game. For example, the Eagle's Tower is perhaps my favorite dungeon. It contains four pillars that need to be knocked down in order for the roof to become accessible. To do this, you'll need to transport a giant ball around and throw it at each pillar. This is made challenging due to the overlapping use of switches and dropping between floors. You'll need to memorize the dungeon's layout and use lateral thinking in order to properly destroy each pillar. Link's Awakening's biggest strength in dungeon design is encouraging the player to memorize layouts, and they have brilliant theming too. In Key Cavern, you can collect keys non-linearly in order to progress through the main path, but you'll still need to break off from the main path and grab the dungeon's item in order to complete the dungeon. In Angler's Tunnel, the hookshot and flippers will allow you to overlap the dungeon layout and discover more within, as long as you remember where things are located initially, creating an exciting incentive for thoroughly exploring the dungeon. In Catfish's Maw, you'll have to chase a Stalfos boss around. Each room subtly implies the order of the rooms he'll appear in, and memorizing these room locations will help you solve this dungeon's overarching puzzle. Turtle Rock requires frequent use of path creation to cross lava, and a lot of its layout will wrap around. 
In addition, there are a handful of entrances to memorize in order to solve the dungeon in its entirety. Memorizing these staircases is also a key part of memorizing a dungeon's layout. All of these dungeons have fascinating concepts that drew me in, and this made entering each new dungeon all the more exciting. Link's Awakening's dungeons also carry with them a few quality of life changes. The compass tracks the chests in a dungeon and locates the boss room as it usually does, but it also plays a chime when there's a key in the room. It's a nice clue that helps keep the pace of the game steady, while also at the same time encouraging you to seek out the solution to a puzzle you may not have even noticed before. Speaking of clues, finding an owl's beak will allow you to ask the owl statue for advice, much like the advice Sahasrila once gave you at the Speaking Stones. All of this helps keep dungeons moving along, and despite having to open your menu a million times per minute to equip items, progression is much smoother now because of these changes. It all adds on to what was already a thoroughly engaging Zelda game. What impresses me most about these dungeons is, in spite of their simplicity, and in spite of their limitations, they still manage to be some of the best dungeons I've seen in a 2D Zelda game. They focus on a core concept and employ layered design and creative puzzle solving. In many ways, dungeons focusing on a core thesis would become the standard for Zelda moving forward. And theming plays a part in this game's dungeons even more so than its predecessors. Link's Awakening is such a progressive game in the Zelda series in every way imaginable. It creates a linear Zelda game that still carries with it a sense of discovery, its tutorial is quaint yet informative, and its dungeons are top-notch. It carries with it the developers' dreams for the future of Zelda, dreams that would go on to be realized in various different forms. And yet, the most progressive thing about this game is something I haven't mentioned yet. It's something that it does better than most games altogether. In media, the It's All a Dream cop-out is looked down upon, and for good reason. Unless there is a purpose, it can make a narrative feel like a waste of time, and can sometimes confuse the audience as to what actually happened in the story. It's an open secret at this point that Link's Awakening takes place within a dream, but what makes it such an incredible example of this plotline is the way the game delivers its message through the ephemeral nature of a dream. Building a narrative around this idea opens up a world of possibilities for unique storytelling and that's where Link's Awakening really shines. The game sets up its big twist by subtly toying with the psychology of dreams. For example, have you heard of the self-organization theory relating to dreams? From the bare minimum amount of research I've done, it theorizes that a lot of random elements that you've thought deeply about recently are brought together into a dream that doesn't seem quite right. I'll give an example with a dream I had recently. My friend Chariot Rider was being quite vocal about how big of a fan he was of the land before time. A few days prior, I was having a pretty lengthy conversation with him about this video you're watching right now. And on the night I had the dream, I was reading about how the Land Before Time was recut to attain a G rating against Don Bluth's wishes, thus resulting in a wealth of unused footage. I have a link to an article about that in the description, by the way. I find it fascinating. Anyway, my brain took two elements from my life and combined them together in order to create a new narrative. This theory plays a part in the appearance of characters and items that don't seem to fit in Link's Awakening like all the Mario characters, Dr. Wright from SimCity, and Prince Richard from the obscure Game Boy game The Frog For Whom The Bell Tolls. Perhaps this is what Link, or rather we, had been thinking about prior to playing Link's Awakening, and we're seeing strange elements come together as we watch Dr. Wright get catfished by a lady using a picture of Princess Peach. Of course, this also brings to light another theory. 
This time one I've thought about for a long time. Escapism in dreams. Usually my dreams are extravagant, absurd, and about as far from reality as you could possibly get. My escape from something laid-back, repetitive, or mundane is something like going on an adventure to stop damn aliens from invading Earth. In contrast, Link's last adventure was already extravagant for a kid like him. Thus, it would make sense that his idea of an escape would be a quaint little island adventure. And an adventure would still take place regardless. It's his calling. It's what he's become so familiar with and excited about. Much like us as fans of Zelda. In addition, most of the characters you meet are odd and unlike most of the other characters the Zelda series featured up to this point. The man that relays advice over the phone because he's too shy to meet with you in person. The woman that so adores her monstrous beast of a pet. The alligator that has a nervous breakdown at the sight of your canned dog food. They're all a bit strange, wouldn't you say? Even some of their appearances are influenced by outside factors. Again calling back to the theory of self-organization. And yet the game goes to great lengths to make them feel authentic and part of the game's world. Their charming personalities, paired with the quirky issues they deal with over the course of the game, make them extremely memorable characters. However, none of them feel as real to me as Marin. She's so pure, so innocent, so genuine, and she bears an uncanny resemblance to a certain princess of Hyrule that Link is already acquainted with. This again calls back to the theory of dreams pulling in elements from reality. But among Link's encounters in his last adventure, not many of them allowed him to connect with Zelda directly. Perhaps this would be his mind's method of bridging that gap. Each conversation you have with Marin is so far removed from the adventure taking place, as she is fascinated by how Link ended up on the island. She wants to share her love of the world with you and relay her dreams for the future, of one day finding out what lies beyond the beaches of Koholint, because after all, you prove to her that there's more to discover out there. After this conversation, you end up escorting her to the animal village, and depending on what you do during your time with her, she'll react accordingly. You can spend as much time as you like with her, discovering her feelings on you entering dungeons or destroying pottery in a home invasion. You can even play the trendy game with her. It's like going on a dream date with someone you've had a crush on for far too long. Everything feels magical. It's such a subtle method of connecting you with the character. In fact, it's so subtle that I didn't even know these interactions existed until recently. To this day, I don't think a single Zelda game has had a moment quite like your date with Marin here. Spending time with Marin is where I came to realize how well the game connects you with its music. Marin's favorite song to sing is Ballad of the Windfish, and you can learn that song in order to warp between parts of the map. You become attached to this melody, as you associate it with Marin. Keep this in mind. As you arrive in the animal village and listen to her song once more, she says something a bit out of character. Don't forget me could simply mean once you leave the island, but the truth ends up being much more dire than that. Upon entering the southern face shrine, you'll find a mural that reveals the island's secret. Kaholin is but an illusion, and even though the owl attempts to reassure you by saying it's all a rumor, it just can't be. Thus, your final moments with the game must be savored. You work grimly towards the end of the game as the windfish egg sits atop the mountain, reminding you of what this will all amount to. Your last moment with Marin amounts to saving her with the hookshot, and as she's about to say something to you, she's pulled away by Terran's calling. Unfortunately, you never get to hear what she wanted to say, and you'll have to say goodbye to Koholin eventually. As you disband the windfish egg and face the final boss, you'll notice that its phases are comprised cleverly of Link's past enemies, including Ganon himself. But after finally dispelling the final nightmare, you are confronted by the owl, the true windfish. And yes, it's all true. Koholint was never real. It's a harsh reality that's meant to hit you like a truck. Everything you had done was all a dream. 
As you awaken the Windfish by playing its ballad once more, the inhabitants of Koholint disappear before your eyes, and Link, finally, awakens. I know, it's hard. Being confronted with something like this after the game allows you to connect so deeply with the game's characters and world, it's not going to be easy to move on. However, the game prepares you for this. After completing one of the dungeons, a ghost will start following you around and he'll ask to be taken to his house. He examines the house, reveling in the nostalgia and memories he created in his waking life. After taking it all in, he finally decides that he can be put to rest. So that's exactly what you do. The scene, albeit poignant, doesn't exactly have relevance until you've finished the game. It was trying to teach you how to move on from the end of an experience. Dreams end, as do all stories. Although Koholint may be gone, the memories you created while adventuring on that island are not. They'll stay with you for the rest of your life. And rather than attempting to recreate that same experience, cherish it deeply. You'll never be able to play Link's Awakening for the first time again, and that's okay. Experiences end. And after one ends, you can always search for another in order to enrich your life. When I was about 10 years old, I was best friends with someone that lived down the street from me. We hung out every day, we rewatched Avatar endlessly, enacted scenes from Naruto like the goofy, nerdy kids we were. It was perfect. Those were some of the happiest times of my life. And as much as I'd like to go back and relive those days, time moves forward. There's more to discover and experience out there. We need to accept that. At the same time, the memories we make with things we love are valuable. If things aren't going our way, rather than wallowing about how you may never be able to recapture those happy times again, you need to use those memories as fuel when looking towards the future, in order to rival or even surpass the happiness you felt back then. I believe that philosophy is personified in the final shot wherein Link watches the Windfish fly over him. Koholin is gone, and yet the Windfish carries with it the spirit of that adventure. Link remembered Koholint, and he was happy. As we know, Zelda continued from here on out, so new experiences were not in short supply. But addressing the concept of escapism being a temporary solution to life's problems is what makes Link's Awakening more than just a Zelda game. Although Link's Awakening is fun while it lasts, even it has to end. Life has to end. Savor it, and take the world on. With this, I can understand why Link's Awakening is a favorite game of many. It's more than a Zelda game. It's a beautiful journey with a harsh message buried within a deceptive Game Boy cartridge. And it's ironic, considering how the game dealt with the finality of experiences, that Nintendo would go against their own philosophy and remake Link's Awakening. Oh. First off, let's look at the practicality here. Is this a good remake? In my opinion, yes. I have no qualms recommending it to anyone that hasn't played Link's Awakening. But it isn't entirely ideal. Almost every change in the remake has a con attached to it, and I feel like they'll make the game a bit iffy for fans of the original Link's Awakening to stomach. For starters, the cumbersome menuing the game is infamous for has been entirely avoided. Your sword, shield, power bracelet, and pegasus boots all do not need to be equipped to an item slot anymore meaning strategy takes priority over switching back to the sword for convenience's sake. And you can partner items with your sword in order to pull off some advanced maneuvers in combat. However, the sword and shield always being equipped means a level of strategy present in the original game has since been lost in translation. For the sake of accessibility, it's a change that makes sense, but from the perspective of someone who loved that element of Link's Awakening, it kind of sucks. 
Another big change is the addition of extra heart pieces and secret seashells. Now there are 50 seashells and 36 heart pieces, doubling and tripling each item count respectively. And I felt the amount of shells required of you was a bit steep considering how small of a gap there was between the bare minimum and 100% completion. So I'm happy about their inclusion here. In fact, you actually get a heart piece in the remake for collecting a certain amount of seashells. This introduces a new incentive for collecting seashells, and it certainly discouraged me from simply beating the color dungeon and calling it a night with the red tunic. Although I suppose I did that while recording footage here. I guess I just wanted to be a walking tank. Anyway, pair the extra amount of heart containers to be attained with a staple of every Zelda remake, Hero Mode, and bam, you have a fantastic way for seasoned players to appreciate the remake. And yet, despite what incentive these new collectibles introduced, the small amount of heart pieces and focus on hunting seashells for a great reward may have been a draw for fans of the original. In many ways, including the placement of heart pieces, Link's Awakening benefited from being linear. However, when filling the world with collectibles and pulling the player in many different directions, it transforms the game into something new. That's good for accessibility, yet bad for retaining the original experience. You see what I'm getting at here? Combat is smooth as silk, yet the subtle mastery in the original swordplay has been lost. The game looks beautiful, but the framerate suffers. The dungeon maker is cool and allows you to create some goofy mishmashes of ideas, but it's awfully rudimentary and thorough use of it is required in order to nab every heart piece here. A fight with Dark Link is in the remake, but it's locked behind a fucking amiibo. It's all a double-edged sword and a result of accessibility and experimentation. The soundtrack also suffers from this problem. When attempting to reimagine a soundtrack with such limited instrumentation, you need to be careful not to misconstrue the atmosphere. For example, The Mysterious Woods was an overtly groovy track to me. The main melody carried within an intimidating sense of discovery, however. A variation on the overworld theme used to evoke curiosity. In the remake, the subtle strings attempt to do the same, but it's the subtlety that devalues the impact the original track had on me. There are tracks like this throughout the game, but there are also tracks that deviate for the better. The soundtrack isn't all just a depressing mishmash of blech, don't worry. Mabe Village is a tune all fans of the game can recognize. Here the main melody utilizes a music box before some nostalgic strings send you into a state of resonance and reflectivity. Although this song is deviating from the original track's one instrument rule, it's still aiming to evoke the same emotions with live orchestration. That's why it works. However, even this track doesn't hold the candle to the best song in the game. In the original, the Face Shrine's music was intimidating in the face of the truth you just read about. 
the remake, well, have a listen. strings highlight the harsh reality of the truth you're facing, and as you progress through the dungeon, you reflect on what it meant in the face of Koholan's future. And even then, the original melody is retained in an effort to emphasize the loneliness felt when realizing the people you're interacting with are simply not real. This song is one of the best I've heard in a video game, period. If I had to give credit to the remake for anything, it'd be for that song hands down. You know, in all honesty, I liked playing the remake, despite how harsh I may have come across. In fact, I might just enjoy it more than the original sometimes based on my own tastes in Zelda. There is a reason I was so harsh on it, however. Wasn't the message of Link's Awakening that experiences have to end? It's nice to relive a game I love so much with a new coat of paint. But shouldn't we be chasing new experiences instead? That's a part of life, isn't it? Perhaps this is a commentary on all remakes. Unless there's something inherently transformative in the concept, like with Final Fantasy VII's remake, why attempt to change or iterate on something that already left a massive impact? Especially something already viewed as fantastic? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why! Money. Nostalgia sells! Fuck artistic integrity, people will buy it because it's a game they liked as a kid, in HD! This is totally worth the $60 to those suckers! Of course, I bought it. I buy remakes and remasters of games I love all the time. They're more accessible ways of playing aging games, emulation aside. My point is that creating a remake of Link's Awakening completely goes against its thesis. Everything has to end. I'll replay Link's Awakening because I have fun with it. But I'll always want something new instead. In the same way I want a new Crash or Spyro game that's worthy to the ones I love so dearly. However, we got the remasters in order to test the waters first. Zelda has gone in so many different directions as a result of this game and other games in the series. Why not take what you've learned and apply that to a new experience? Why trap people in the same dream and go against the lesson you once preached? If there's something I think we can all gather from this, it's that dreams end. Sooner or later, we all have to wake up. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't hold on to what we've learned or the memories we created. When Nintendo was finished with this game, they used what they learned to create more Zelda games. When the world was finished with this game, they learned a lesson about the ephemerality of escapism. 
When I finished with this game, I wrote a video about it. And yet, I'll be moving on to other projects after this. I'll be using what I learned to create my next video. You know what? If my YouTube channel takes off and sustains me for a while, I have to accept that it won't last forever. And yet, a new chapter of my life will begin and I can pursue new creative avenues. I'll just need to savor my time here. See, that's a personal example, and these are lessons that can be learned from playing Link's Awakening. It is a masterclass in video game storytelling. Despite its subtlety, it conveys one of the most poignant messages I've ever had the pleasure of seeing depicted in a game. And as a Zelda game, it introduces and fleshes out ideas that would steer the series in exciting new directions that represent Nintendo's dreams for the future. In many ways, it's an allegory for dreaming. And just like a nice dream, it has to end eventually. Learning to accept that is what makes the game truly phenomenal. It's a good first Zelda game due to the steps it takes to draw in players. It's a great game for seasoned players thanks to its engaging dungeons, combat, quests, and overworld. But it's a good video game above all else for its handling of its message. The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening is legendary.